Well, all right. Good morning, everybody. Christ is risen. Amen. So it's always like a, I would say, a honor to speak here. It's always my privilege too. And uh, yeah, like today I was thinking, uh, thinking uh, oh, what should I talk about? Or maybe I should at least talk about something Easter-ish. <laughs> so I kind of, uh, I guess uh, just nowadays in my study, I was kind of thinking about uh, covenant theology. And I was like, oh, why not? Maybe let's do something relating to that. It's kind of related, but then uh, it kind of got a little bit out of hand because it's kind of a monster in itself. <laughs> so uh, Easter Sunday, we typically re- re- uh, celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his conquering of sin and death. But I think it's also kind of important that we look at the magnificent plan that God has laid out over the whole century, over the whole history. And that leads to uh, this very point from the history of mankind to this very point and to the future too. And I think it's uh, continue on to be relevant, continue on the whole of history. So I think I'm going to speak about this. It's kind of inevitable that we have to talk about covenants. And so uh, if you look at our Bibles alone, you can see that it's delineated into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes you also can call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So I think it's, it's kind of interesting because when we start looking at the Bible in terms of covenants, <laughs> here you go, you start placing the relationship between God and man correctly because God and man, we are different essence. You would say like God is God and man is man. God is not man, man is not God and vice versa. And, but it also bridges the whole Bible as a continual composition. So it's, like a, it's not like a God, it's like a, sometimes they call it a schizophrenic God. Like in parts, he's like he acts differently throughout different ages. But I think when you look in terms of uh, covenants, like uh, you see that God it's like a, continues always the same from the very beginning to the very future. And so I would say it's like a, the whole Bible, it's, you can view it all more like a composition, almost like a classical piece, like where you have like a multiple movements. Each one might uh, give you a different emotions, but they are all of the same piece. And I think it's also very interesting because throughout each covenant, uh, you see something more about God each time. And until the new covenant, everything was fulf- like a, a lot was, I guess everything was fulfilled. And uh, it's also eschatologically positive because when you talk about uh, covenant, which I'll kind of mention one of the key points to it later, is that there's this uh, continuation and there's this, uh, uh, there's a task for us, which is to fulfill the dominion mandate. That's to uh, conquer or take care of everything on earth. So, let's go into it. So, some of, some, some of you guys might probably heard of this term. It's called a suzerainty covenant. So, in suzerainty covenant, uh, it's very common in the ancient East. There are treaties drafted between a superior and his inferior. If the relationship was familiar, or friendly, the parties referred to as father and son. So if the relationship is uh, bereft of kindness and intimacy, then the parties are referred to Lord and servant, or sometimes you could say Lord and vessel, 
king and vassal. So the greater king, it's usually the suzerain. And the lesser king, it's a prince or a lesser lord or the vassal. That's usually in service of the greater king. And the lesser king, it's a representative of the common people who are under the protection of the greater king. So he enforces the treaty among the masses. And so you kind of see, like, uh, when you start looking at the Bible, you'll see that the covenants found in the Bible, it kind of follows this pattern, too. It's have this, like, a suzerainty covenant relationship in it. And I think, like, the, in the suzerainty covenant, it's, it's able to uh, kind of join God and man so that we can relate correctly. And you'll see this throughout uh, the whole Old Testament, the Edenic, the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants, and also in the New Testament, which you have the New Covenant, and also the Marriage Covenant, which a lot of us are familiar with. Maybe some of you guys not yet, but you soon will be. We have a few coming up too. You can listen to, it, to what they say. So in the Bible, there's uh, two main types, uh, suzerainty, covenant, and parody, which is uh, when you have an equal standing, and that's the case for uh, Jonathan and David. But for this case, we'll just talk about suzerainty. So uh, there's uh, also a good resource, which is Greg's RRBC emphasis number 5K, which he kind of talks about it too. And so uh, different people split it into different... Uh, pieces. So like uh, here, for, some, for reasons that you'll see, like, uh, I'll use the five-piece model. Like for Greg's message, you'll see a lot of times you split to eight. Or sometimes people can split to nine. So let's go into it. So you'll see the five sections of the Biblical Covenant. Number one, it's usually there's a transcendence. And when I talk about transcendence, it's like a there's a declaration of the suzerain, like he'll be saying like a who he is, and so on and so forth. And there's also a historical prologue that follows it. And sometimes God will be saying to the people what he has done throughout ages. And next it comes to hierarchy. And so with the hierarchy, it's uh, really all about who it's the main person, who's the main representative that's receiving this uh, covenant, and that he will be the pers this person that will administrate this uh, covenant to the common people. And a lot of times we call it the covenant hates. And next you have the uh, ethics. And ethics, like, uh, it's probably one of the ones we might be more familiar with. It's the Ten Commandments. It's the stipulations, the laws. The, it includes like the, some of the oaths too. But next you go into the one it's called sanctions. And in sanctions, it's saying like a, what kind of blessing or what kind of curses will fall upon you if you uh, decide to obey the covenant, if you keep the covenant, or if you break it, then you'll get the curses. And lastly, uh, it's a continuity, it's a succession. And this is one of some of those we see when, say, uh, Moses passes down to Joshua. There's this laying on hands, there's this meal that they have together. And, yep, let's go into the first one. So I guess, uh, so I would like to just add a little blurb here. 
So I think it was really interesting uh, when I start looking at covenants because uh, at first I was thinking uh, uh, maybe this would be appropriate for Easter. Then after that, like, I got sidetracked a little bit by all this covenant stuff. But in the, while in the midst of like, uh, studying into it, I think I, it kind of helped me understand the Bible a lot more. It helped me to kind of see where like, a lot of the terms that we use actually comes from. That all of them actually points back to Christ again. Like terms like uh, imputation, like uh, uh, discipleship, and uh, like a stuff like, uh, let's see, what else? Representation, accountability, redemption. They're all part of this, like, uh, you would say, like covenant framework. It's, everything is weaved into it. So I guess without further ado, let's talk about transcendence. So uh, here I'm going to use uh, Deuteronomy as an example. So first, like, uh, in Deuteronomy 1, verse 1 through 5, and especially in verse 3, it says, uh, Then Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord has given him in commandment to them. So in here you kind of see like uh, there's this uh, transcendence, like a God that's uh, using Moses to speak. And also like uh, the Lord is the one who gave him all the commandment. So in this first part, like uh, what is important is the identification of the parties, that God is a suzerain and Israel is the vessel. So it's the distinction in the essence. Like I said just now, God is God, man is man. They are not, they are different. So what's the significance here then? So I think it's kind of interesting because um, when you talk about some of God's attributes like uh, transcendence and immanence, so transcendence is just saying like a God, it's a God that's above us. But a lot of times when we talk about transcendence, it, sometimes you can talk about a God that's so high up, they, he, it's not, he doesn't do anything on earth at all. But on the opposite end, you have immanence, which is speaking about God. It's like a, he's throughout the world. He's always immersed in the world. So it's kind of like a somewhat opposite idea. But these are both of God's attributes. So, so it's really interesting. And the thing that weave these two attributes together, it's a covenant. Because if you think about it, if... Um, God is just transcendent alone. That's what you'll see in deism, where God just creates this world, winds it up, leaves it alone, and see what happens next. It just goes on and on and on and on. And then what happens in deism? Like man become God, because God doesn't really care about the creation. But then if you look at the other end, you look at uh, if it's just an immanent God only, and it's not transcendent, you kind of got this kind of uh, God that's in the society. It's almost like man. It's, it's, it becomes pantheism. So that's kind of what you have with like Greek mythology gods. And sometimes you can also say superheroes, which are kind of like this too. But in this, like a man kind of subjugates God because they are so much alike. So you see, it's really interesting that uh, through a covenant, like this two can come together in one. 
like God being God and man being man. But there's another one that's, uh, if you don't want transcendence, in, if you don't want the Iman in God, I think what people in the world, what they will start doing is they'll come up with false religion to become like God. And that's still like, say, like an evolution where you continually evolve and you gain more and more essence until you become somewhat like God. Or if not, you, talk, you can kind of say, speak about this uh, regarding the Mormons. It's kind of similar to when they die, they'll kind of go into another world or something where they become gods. So like, uh, in this whole transcendence thing, I think what, what is important, it's, uh, it all comes down to man wanting to supersede God and want man wanting to become like God. And that's also the very first uh, sin that Adam had because he wanted to be like God. He was tempted to be like God and original sin came in through that. So like in this, also, we also can talk a little bit about imputation. So when we, we look at the covenant, there's always a legal declaration in the starting. And where in here, you see the status is being applied onto this relationship. And in this, we call it imputation. Or you can say it's like a, as if it's treated if it was DRs. And let's take a look at Adam. So when Adam ate the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the, the consequences everybody know it's death. Although he did not die immediately. But actually what, I think what happened here is really like when you look at it covenantally, he died in a covenant way first. He was disowned. He became an orphan. And death came into the world. And it's not just only um, physical only, because this is an eternal death. It's like a, if you think of death just after you die, oh, that's it. This death, I think, is more than that, because you'll be an eternal punishment. And so this, death, this kind of death was also imputed onto him, because God counted him as dead. And this is where the original sin appeared. And so you can say that the original sin kind of came through imputation. So let us see. Uh, it was interesting. I, I thought this one in Luke 15, verse 18 and 19. It says, I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of a hired servants. So you kind of see this also happening in the New Testament too. There's, there's, they, like I think the uh, Jews, they have kind of really have this idea about covenant. So, however, as part of the covenant, Adam should be judged that very day, isn't it? Like God should have judged him and should have been physically dead also, he should have been uh, in eternal punishment. But that did not happen. So because I thought this was really cool and this was really interesting. It's because imputation also worked the other way. Because when God started looking at Adam's sin, he also started to look at what is going to happen in the future. So he also started to looking to the for, forward to the death of Christ that satisfied the very legal requirement. 
So in this case, like a righteousness was also imputed onto Adam so that he did not die physically. I thought that was really neat, isn't it? So when after Adam sinned, God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and the offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his feet. And let's take a look at Romans. It says in Romans 5, verse 12 to 15, And therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sin over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespasses, much more through the grace of God, and the free gift of the grace of that which one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so continue saying, uh, therefore, as one trespasses led to condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness lead to justification and a life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came, into, came in to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And also in Luke 15, it's coming back to the uh, prodigal son. It says, And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and and before you and no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best ropes and put on them and put on a ring on his hand and the shoes on his feet so he was restored the very time so i, I think it's a, in when we talk about transcendence even though god it's a higher god but i think it's really interesting and it's really uh, important for us to know that like through this, we also see the grace and mercy of God also. So the next one, let's take a look at the hierarchy. And so we see this in Deuteronomy 1 through 4. So specifically in Deuteronomy 1 verse 12 to 17, it's probably a little small there. But it says, How can I bear myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I'll appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, The thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribe, wise and experienced men, and set them heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at the time. Hear the case between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring them to me, and I'll hear it. So when we talk about hierarchy, it's really like the 
main, the covenant head that received this uh, covenant. And from there, like uh, he, you also see this is Moses speaking uh, as the covenant head to the people of Israel. It's almost as if he's God to them. So I, I like uh, what uh, this author, he's mentioned. He said, if God is transcendent, the true covenantal suzerain, then he established his authority on earth. He makes his lordship visible by establishing representative, a hierarchy. He establishes delegated authorities whom work from bottom up and not a bureaucracy. So then what's the significance here? <clears throat> so you will see like uh, in this case, like uh, Moses is uh, using his delegated authority. And there's a lot of times there's this demonstration of transcendence. Then as God commanded and Moses appointed. So let's take a look at a couple of verses. In Exodus 4, 16, he said, He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Then next in John, in the New Testament, John 14, verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So you, you see this like a concept here about hierarchy, about delegated authority. And also in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. So there's another confirmation. So, like, uh, so what I thought was interesting here, it's like, uh, when we start looking at the fall. Because in here you start seeing, give me a sec, what a bottle fell. So in here you start seeing like uh, Satan actually struck at the hierarchy that uh, Adam had because he started offering Adam a divine authority which he was where he started asking like, uh, if you eat of this knowledge of uh, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like God. And it's, it's kind of interesting here because uh, he's trying to convince Adam to be like God, but Adam was actually already like God because God says he made man in his own image. And that's in Genesis 1 verse 26. But what Satan was doing is he's drawing his attention to something different it's to be God. It's not to be like God. It's to be God. And in this, Satan mediated this covenant break between God and Adam. And he kind of replaced it with his own when Adam chose to listen to Satan as his new lawgiver. And now Satan's above him. And now it's kind of, it's kind of strange because you see this reversal of this whole uh, structure that God has. Because remember, God made man in his own image to rule over his creation. But now what happened? Adam gave away this delegated authority of God to the creation. So man, the creation is here. Now you reverse. Now the creation is above man. And so now creation is ruled by God's creation, the serpent, the snake. And this is like a rebellion against God hierarchy. 
But also, I guess, like, uh, when you talk about um, hierarchy, like, uh, it, it's inevitable that you talk about representation and accountability. Because like, uh, when, when somebody's representative of the covenant, if he suffers, everybody under him suffer, and it's the same opposite way, everybody on the bottom suffer, the top also suffer. It goes both ways. So we see this in uh, one example. is when the leaders rebel in 2 Samuel verse 24. It's when David decided to chastise his people. He started counting the people, but he did not offer the sacrifice. And what happened next? God gave him three options, and he chose the one which uh, 70,000 people died and there's another case where you see when the people start rebelling in Deuteronomy 1, verse 26, when you see the people continually grumble against Moses over and over and over and over. And that resulted in what? 40 years walking in the wilderness. And like those people that grumbled, like they never made it into the promised land. And in this case, like when they don't go into the promised land, there's a delay of the kingdom of God. Like a God's people, it's not doing what they're supposed to be. And also, I think it's interesting also, take a look at the New Testament too. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 to 2, uh, it's also commanded to ask that, first of all, he said, uh, then I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's kind of interesting. It's kind of like in the Bible, it's telling us to pray for these authorities. It's kind of a bottom-up. Then this is a reverse here. Hebrews 13, verse 17 to 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have given, give, for those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So you see this one, it's like a, from the obeying of the leaders. So, uh, Next in hierarchy, what I thought was interesting was when we start looking at uh, redemption. So in the Old Covenant, what we see, it's like we see layers of hierarchy between God and man. First, you have the high priest as the priest in the house of Aaron. Then the next layer, you have the house of Aaron, which includes the high priest, and they acted as priests to the Levites, Israel, and other nations. Then the next layer, you have the Levites, which includes the house of Aaron and the priests, which acted as priests to Israel and the other nations. And lastly, you have Israel, which includes all the above, and they acted as high priests to other nations. There's these layers and layers before you can get like, uh, closer and closer to God. But I think what was the uh, most powerful thing, one of the powerful things that Jesus died on the cross in the new covenant was that we come to God through representation of God himself. It's through Jesus Christ. Which also means we have a direct access. And through prayer, the church has an even greater access to God than the high priest ever did. Remember in the, in the Old Testament, the high priest can only come to God once every year. 
But in this, in here, like I do what Jesus has done, we have a continual access to God. And above them, there's even more because um, in Matthew 27, verse 51, we see that the veil was torn into two. Remember, uh, God kind of says, uh, in John, in, early in John 1, verse 23, he says, uh, make straight the path for God. And I think it was kind of interesting, like this path was made open, it was made straight, and so there's a direct access to God now. And this, I think, also kind of reminds me of uh, the song, What a Beautiful Name by Hillsongs. So in verse 2 of this song, it says, You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great, but your love was greater. What could separate us now? So I, got, I thought that was, oh, what a wonderful lyrics in this. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He brought heaven down onto earth. And also remember God, uh, remember Moses saying, like, how can I bear the burden? But now, instead of Moses alone, we have Christ as a representative and the Holy Spirit as your full-time intercessor, as we see in uh, Romans 8, verse 26. And of course, he's able to bear everybody because Moses was limited, but God is not limited. So this leads us to our next part of our discussion, which comes to ethics. So the suzerain and the vessel, they related to each other according to the stipulations that was laid out. And in this regard, in, in Deuteronomy, it's mainly the old the Ten Commandments. So what's the significance here? So when we talk about ethics, uh, we talk about all the laws that God has given. And there's only two results. It's pretty simple. It's either you keep it or you don't. If you keep it, then you're, you get all the blessings. If you don't, you get the curses. Nothing too magical here. <laughs> but I think this is really at the foundation of being a Christian. Because I, I, I find like the Christian life, it's really laid through the obedience of the Word of God. And it's through loving God wholeheartedly and loving people fervently at the same time. Where remember Jesus said, the whole law can be summed into two, loving God and loving people. And also, true obedience is not blind. It, it, has, it has to have proper standards, which is God's. And as we have the proper motivations, which is like our inner heart motivation and desires, and it has to be applied with the proper actions. If one, this is kind of almost like a three-legged stool. If one is not there, uh, it's not really a true obedience. So this goes into dominion. So from the very beginning, God has appointed Adam to be the mediator over all all of God's creation. And we see that in Genesis 1, verse 28. And I would say that has not changed. Although the covenant hates change, but I think like, the, like some of the blessings and curses, they never really change. And what is given to uh, Adam was still commanded unto us when it comes to the dominion mandate. And you, you see, like, uh, when you start obeying the word of God, 
it should naturally lead to the fulfillment of the dominion mandate. But when the church is not obedient, the whole creation suffers. And you see in this verse, uh, oops, I guess it's not there. Ah, it's, it's, I guess I skip a little bit here. It's talking about Christ being the perfect mediator. And so in Matthew, with Christ being the perfect mediator, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And that's the things that Christ has given onto us. Pretty powerful stuff. And so they'll say, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I think it's really interesting you see here that the whole creation waits for the Christians to really rise up for the church to actually do something. And next, let's talk about sanctions. This is the fourth part. Hopefully you guys do remember there's quite a lot to take. There's transcendence, there's a hierarchy, then there's ethics. And now it comes to uh, sanctions. And you see this uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 27 to 30. It says here, um, Israel accepted the sanctions in two locations. In uh, Deuteronomy, you'll see one is at Mount Gerizim, where it's all the blessings. And at the other place, Mount Ebal, they got all the curses. They got all the curses are spoken of, and it's to a sacred oath. And what the oath is, they say, "Amen." So you see, like a, it's amen. It's like a not not a small little thing that's like a to be hung on our lips. When they pronounce all this, the congregation will say, "Amen," because what it really means, like a let it be done, whatever curses that you have spoken of, let it be done unto us also. Whatever blessing, also let it be done unto us. And we also see like uh, here, heaven and earth is the weakness. So for uh, this, we see there's uh, in sanctions, there's three parts of it. One, it's the sanctions itself, which is the blessing and the curses. Then we also have the oaths, and lastly, we have the weaknesses. So let's talk a little about, about sanctions. So you'll see in the Bible, a lot of times uh, when we talk about blessing, it usually have to do something with inheritance, while curses usually have to do something with death. And we talk about oaths. Uh, I thought this one was like a really pretty, interesting one because there, there's this thing called a self-maledictory oath and what it really means is like uh, the curses are imposed upon the person who says them so example it's like a it's almost kind of like a, you'll say like if i say oh i'll swear i'll do it for you this thing if i don't uh um, my car will be hit tomorrow or something like this <laughs> So I think it's interesting because to a certain extent, you, you, to a certain extent, you see that this is kind of prophetic in some ways, especially in these cases where God is speaking. And it usually happens because God knows everything. <laughs>
But uh, when we think about uh, what happened to Abraham, uh, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, remember the Abraham cut up the animals. Then after that, God brought him into a deep sleep. And in that, uh, there's the animals and there was a smoking fire pot. And I think, like, uh, if I remember correctly, it's like a, a very bright rod or something like this. Some very bright thing. So it was kind of interesting because like a, that thing passed through the animals. Which, which when you do something like this, it means like a, if you don't fulfill, if you don't keep up the part of your promise, you'll be like the animals to be cut in half, to have death. And so I think the most interesting part here, it's like a, who is the person who's making this oath, right? You see it's God himself making the oath to, him, to Abraham. And it's not common because usually uh, it's not the suzerain who do this oath, it's usually the vessel who does this. But in this case, God is actually doing this oath And so God swore upon himself and God took on the curses so that covenant recipients can receive the blessings. And I guess, uh, let me go on. Ah, here. So I think it's kind of interesting too here, like uh, every covenant except for Christ is unconditional, although they are not without the terms. For example, one of the terms would be like, say, like eating the food for Adam. But the, the thing here, it's like uh, Adam did nothing to deserve God cutting this covenant with him. And so is the rest of the covenant hits. But the only person, like I say just now, it's Christ. He entered into the conditional covenant with it, the Father. But once he met the condition, which is obedience unto death on the cross, we actually receive his benefits unconditionally. And because it's through his representation, and the terms here, if, if we are in Christ. And I think this is really uh, amazing because this is what kind of uh, mediates grace and law. So you, a lot of times you hear people say like uh, it's a lot. It's kind. It sounds a little bit contradictory when we talk about law or we talk about grace. But what Christ did here through this uh, action and dying on the cross immediates these two together. And also when we talk about the self-maledictory oath, it's. I think it's kind of amazing because. Uh, God kind of know that this will be broken. It kind of also already broke. But he promised uh, eventual judgment on himself. And that's still Jesus. But we also see because of sin, a substitutionary atonement is needed temporarily to avert, avert this judgment upon God himself and upon us. And until Jesus, who took on the malediction as God, substitutionary atone, substitutionally atoned for our sins and fulfilled every terms of the Father on the cross, it was actually not required for God to do so. And through this, we really see the love and grace of God. That God don't have to do this for all of us. He could have just uh, judged us, and we should have, could have just died 
but God is kind of a proclaiming, he's taking an oath against himself because he loves us. And that's, that's really grace. You don't, we don't deserve it at all. And I think another interesting one, it's like, uh, as uh, Abraham has this right of circumcision as a blood covenant symbol, which is like marking him as a person of, God, of God's family, we receive communion as a blood covenant symbol. And that marks us as Christians. But also remember that this also comes with the sanctions, the blessing and the curses. So when we take communion, I, I think it's something, not, something that we should not take it lightly. So in speaking about this, we also come to adoption. Because like a, when you cut a covenant, like cutting the animals, you also receive a new name. And for Abraham, he received a name as Abraham when the covenant was made. And for Jacob, after the covenant was made, he became Israel. And we see something very similar we have today. It's water baptism. And you see, it, because it signifies being born again into a new covenantal family, which is God's family. And we see here in John 3, verse 3 to 5, it says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. But what I thought was also interesting is, with saying this, that means man is covenantally often because of sin, we are all cut off from God, we are all cut off from God's family. And the only way we can become sons of God is through God adopting us as children. And you see this in our Psalms 51, verse 5. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And in John 1, verse 12 to 13, But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think it's also kind of worth... Uh, 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 well, actually, let's go on to the next point. <laughs> let's talk about the very last one. It's uh, with continuity, Deuteronomy 31 through 34. So I, I think this is really, when we talk about continuity, it's a kind of interesting to look at Joseph as an example. And because uh, what you see, it's uh, in Joseph's story, uh, he was thrown into the pit. It's a symbol of death by his brothers who disowned him. And when the brothers brought back news to his father Jacob, and Jacob thought he was dead too. So in this sense, he was kind of covenantally cut off. He was dead to Jacob, and he was also sold to Egypt. And he was a nobody, he has no inheritance anymore because it's not part of the covenant anymore. So like I, Joseph worked hard by, through the blessing of God. Uh, he was successful in managing Potiphar's household. 
And he's slowly becoming of somebody, becoming of some influence in the household. But what happened next? You see, it's like a, uh, his wife kind of accused him, and then Potiphar put him in the pit again, in jail. So he died again. And when we talk about this, it's interesting because uh, when we talk about continuity, it's a passing on of covenant generation after generation. And so one generation that they have, like the, they built this foundation, and they pass it on to the next, and this is the inheritance that they have. So that the next generation, you don't have to toil so hard to get all the basic fundamental needs. This is covered by the previous generation. And it kind of goes on and goes forth so that the work of God can be continual and can be more effective. But for Joseph's case, he lost all of this. And let's take a look back in Joseph's story. He's in the prison now. Then after that, uh, remember, uh, there's a cupbearer who he prophesied to, and he asked the cupbearer to remember him. But what happened? The cupbearer kind of forgot about it, and he was, he was in jail for a long, long, long time. And until finally, one day, Pharaoh finally uh, had this dream, then the cup bearer remembered, oh, there was this guy in the prison a long time ago. Maybe you can try him. And you see here, like, uh, uh, then, of course, like, uh, uh, Joseph interpreted the dream. And Pharaoh was uh, wise enough to see that, like, oh, this person is of God and he carries blessings with him. And Pharaoh made him his right hand man. I remember, like, uh, Pharaoh also gave him, like, a cloak and, like, uh, rings and the authority, and Joseph become like a delegated authority onto Pharaoh. So now, instead of being in God's covenant, he almost becomes like he's in Pharaoh's covenant. He becomes a son of Pharaoh. But you know, in here, you also see like Pharaoh also gave him uh, uh, his, sis, uh, his daughter as uh, Joseph's wife, and he bore him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And you'll see in here, like, uh, what does Manasseh mean? It's like a, it means like a, it's like a, something to do with forgetting. You can say it to a certain extent, it's like a forgetting of the covenant. And Ephraim, you'll see, it's like a, it means a fruitfulness. Through this, we'll see why it means this later. So now, like, a, it's at a point where Joseph has almost felt like uh, he's not of same covenant that his family had, not of God's covenant anymore. It's cut off. And now it's under Pharaoh's covenant, his Pharaoh's son. But one fine day, with God's plan, there was a drought. And so you know the story, the brothers came into Egypt. And then eventually, like a back and forth, you see like a finally Jacob also was brought into Egypt. And then Joseph provided for him. And it became uh, almost like a savior to his whole family. And uh, in uh, the Jewish culture, when you provide for your family, if you are the main provider, you kind of become the firstborn of the family. You get the double portion. And so I thought what was interesting here the most, it's uh, before that, I always thought of like uh, the 12 tribes. Why was Joseph not in there? But instead, it was his two sons. And it was kind of interesting because uh, from here, we see that Joseph is covenantally dead. 
But what he did next because of his understanding of covenant, when his father, Jacob, was growing old, he brought his two sons before Jacob and asked Jacob to bless them. But here what Jacob has to do, because Jacob actually has not really any authority over his two sons because it's born outside of his camp. So what Jacob has to do first is to first adopt these two sons as his own. And we see that uh, in, one of the, in Genesis 48, verse 5. I don't think I put it there. But you'll see like uh, Jacob adopted these two children as his own children. And remember Joseph's birthright? There was two portions to it. And he gave it onto these two children. And that's why when you have like the 12 tribes, it's these two children because they inherited Joseph's portion. But I thought what I thought was really cool was also later, um, usually the firstborn get the main blessing. But Jacob, he kind of, usually you just put your hand out like this when you bless the children. But Jacob flipped his hands. And Joseph was, oh, no, no, that's wrong. But then uh, Jacob, he, kind of, he knows what he was doing. He said, it's fine. And he blesses the younger. And so I thought it was interesting, like uh, the younger son, Ephraim, Later, like, uh, through his descendants, he came uh, another savior, which is called Joshua. And he was the person who led the whole Israel into the promised land. And what I thought was really cool here was that Ephraim, through Joshua, brought Joseph bones into the promised land. So let's take a look at some other significance here. <coughs> So, kind of like Joseph, uh, Christ has this double portion because in Colossians 1 verse 15, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. But then, like Joseph, he also has to die covenantally so that this double portion can be passed on to us, on to the church. And so the church can be adopted by the Father and given this portion. So I thought that was really powerful as well. So, And I guess uh, also with this, like, uh, we talk about discipleship, like, which is a very important part of this continuity. Because you will see, like, uh, Moses required the law to be read every seven years so that the children may know this found in Deuteronomy 31, verse 10 and 13. In verse 13, I have my slides reversed, so it's confusing for me. In verse 13, it says, And that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So you see this continuity. You see this training that all the descendants after that has to also be trained in the law so that they will know and so that they will continue on the work that was handed down to them. And so I think like, uh, the, uh, the author I was reading, he also made this statement. He says, there can be no dominion without discipleship. I thought that was really interesting too. So let's do a quick recap here. 
So like I will briefly talk about the five sections uh, of a biblical covenant. And uh, in this uh, model I had is five. Uh, so here, the first one is transcendence, uh, which is talking about uh, who God is, like uh, who the suzerain is. And next, we're going to hierarchy. The hierarchy is like uh, talking about uh, who's the covenant head, who's the rep main representative. And next, we're going to ethics, which is the laws that's like uh, laid out, and how you can, uh, like, uh, what's the standard you should live in. And finally, we also, we also have the sanctions, which talk about the blessing and the curses that will fall upon you if you are a covenant keeper or if you are a covenant breaker. Then lastly, we have this continuity that's like a continuing passing down throughout generation by generation. So this doesn't stop at that one generation. So the very last part, um, it's kind of, kind of something that I was wanting to... Uh, do initially, but as I was doing this introduction, it got longer and longer and longer <laughs> until you go out of hand. So, but I guess it can be a homework to you guys in some ways. So it's kind of interesting here because when you look at Matthew, the book of Matthew, it's split into five sections. And these five sections, uh, it all ended with this saying here. It, it says, and it came to pass when Jesus has ended this saying, it's happened five times at different parts. And it's also when you take a look at uh, the first part of it, Matthew 1 through 7, it's really talking about the transcendence of God. Then in the second part, you'll see it's a hierarchy. Then next, ethics. Then next, sanctions. Then next, you have the continuity. And here you'll see there's a discontinuity over there. That's because it's a covenant lawsuit being brought up. It's a disowning of Israel. And finally, you have a continuity, which is the Great Commission. So that's something you guys can find and kind of look throughout when you look at Matthew. So that's my attempt at something Easter. 